0: We're going to start with the Ecclesiastes prayer, which is on the front of the songbooks. Lord, give us life as we seek you and your kingdom with a whole heart, as we attempt to fear you and keep your commandments. Let our life be found in Christ led by the Holy Spirit as we walk walk in in the arena of God's great mysteries. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business of God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived what God, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him that which already has been, that which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away, Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 15. I find the Ecclesiastes to be similar to a weighted blanket that I pull over my head and hide from the world for a bit. It is a place of comfort. It is an easy place to find comfort in the meaningless apathy of life and float through not caring about what I do or don't do because why bother with anything? After all, we all can't be the Tyrones and Jims of the world and find regular encouraging things encouraging. Some of us need the meaningful, meaningless of life to get through. I found it humorous how I even came to preach on this section. When we met to talk about Ecclesiastes, I mentioned one of my favorite scriptures was in this book, and Scott said if there is something that jumps out, to take it even if he was still here. So I said I would take it, and Scott wrote this one down. I said a different scripture, but I prayed over it and agreed with the Holy Spirit to take this section on. The first several times I read through, I quickly doubted it and thought, there is nothing in this scripture. Then I realized there is so much more in it than I could have guessed. More than I could honestly cover because each line could be read and dissected in several ways. Before I ever wrote the first word, I felt like I was getting it wrong or missing it. And then I realized after lots of prayers and conversations with a few trusted friends, I can't cover it all. I can't simply explain every part of everything to you because I am not Jesus and I am not the Holy Spirit. That was not surprising to my kids or husband. I could stand here and say to you that... This is my best attempt to cover it all, but that would be a lie. This is simply me sharing what the Holy Spirit gave me to share and trust that he can and will cover the rest. The true beauty of this book is that everything we do and every part of us is meaningful, but because we are dust, we have the freedom to jump into the unknown and fail or succeed. This book is like a book of opposites calling out out to us all at once. As I prepare my sermons, the number one way I prepare is just to read and reread the scripture I am preaching on over and over and ask, What do the words mean and what words am I supposed to speak? I read through this a lot and resented the word toil. I am in a season of hard toil, as many of us are, a season where it feels like all the little seeds I am (laughs) planting into the dirt and toiling away with are just rotting or blowing away. What am I to gain from this toiling? What is the beauty that exists in it? What is the beauty that exists in toil and the pressure of our lives? The commentary written by Julie Ann Duncan says that the toil referred to here is our lives and that the work is our daily struggles through the mundane. If anyone can understand the mundane, it is a mother. From the time my kids were placed in my arms to the point where they watched them drive away in their own cars and beyond. My life has become a monotonous cycle of chores, asking questions, answering questions, breaking up the dumbest fights, cleaning up, making food, and then going to bed and doing it all again. The question is why? Why would I do that? Why would I choose to toil and work in this way? Because every one of those moments, I choose to do those things over and over. I am choosing to pour meaning into my children. I am offering them worth and value. I was and hopefully am teaching them that they have meaning. Where is your daily toiling telling you to pour into? Where are you offering meaning? I certainly have not done these things anywhere near perfect. My family have sat through several meals prepared by my hands where I have sulked and was fussy because I didn't get the praise or thanks in the way I wanted. Plenty of times where the feeling of meaningless made my work seem pointless. I wasn't getting fast enough results or enough praise. Isn't that our lifetime struggle? We aren't getting fast enough results. Whether we are mothers, fathers, children, students, whether it is in our work inside our home or our jobs or at school, we are terrified and scared not to see the results of our work because then what is it all for? If we can't get the results to say we succeeded or to show us where we need to improve, what are we working towards? Isn't it meaningless and not worth our time to work towards something that can't be measured? The question, that question doesn't have a clear answer either way. It would be easy to say, yes, you should be working towards a goal. Your time should be productive, and if you aren't producing, you aren't doing what God wants. It's also just as easy to say, no, you should wait, have faith, and trust this process. But God isn't bound by our now. In verse 11, the author wrote, he has put eternity into man's hearts. The everyday work we are dealing with is pulling us towards God's heart. We live in a tug of war between living in the now and longing for eternity. If you listen to any song, look at any painting, read a novel, they are all pointing towards the eternity of man's fight with wanting it now. We are created people designed to create. It is in our creating that we start to understand what it means to have our hearts built for eternity. Ironically, I would say it is also in our creating that we see how little we know and how little we know about eternity. Every time I write, I know God best. I trust him more. I know what my life's purpose is. Every time I write, I realize that I could never write anything perfectly and convey what I want someone to get out of it. It actually is driving me a little bit crazy to know that each of you will get something different out of this piece of writing because the Holy Spirit belongs to you just as freely as he belongs to me. I know that there may be some people hearing this that say, wait, I'm not creative, so this doesn't include me. And I would say to you that you are wrong. (laughs) Creating is not about art as we know it. It is about being created beings. It is for the benefit of my life that my husband can create and understand Excel. It is an offering of meaning and love that he knows how to balance our bank account. It is a pursuit of eternity and the longing for it that pushes our hearts to do the things we love and create. What do you love? What do you long to create? What is in your heart to create and draw you to the pursuit of eternity? What offers that joy in the toiling? The author then wrote, Nothing for them is better than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to you, man. Are we really supposed to thank God for the gift of toil? How are we supposed to find joy in this? Doesn't it feel like giving thanks for someone bringing you vegan brownies or gifting you soap for your birthday? Sure, their hearts were in the right place and they thought about you, but is that really what you wanted? If there is nothing better for us than to be joyful about all this eternity and toil God put in our hearts, I would have hoped that it was all easier. But it is possible that I am wrong about that. It is perhaps a rather immature way to view joy as getting what we want the easiest way possible. All the striving, working, struggling, and overcoming failures and stress make the sweetness of joy more real. All the creating we do creates joy. As I wrote this part on joy, I was watching my son play a baseball game against the team that last time they played lost 22 to two. I watched the team go into this game assuming they would lose again because no one in our league has come close to beating this team. Everyone told Chaucer's team to take it as they weren't even playing a game against another team, but just practice because everyone knows the other team is going to win. And they lost again last night. But towards the end of the game, they were tied and were a bad call away from actually being ahead. You could feel how excited the boys were at this point, and it wasn't even victory yet. The thing is, is that Chaucer's team believes they will beat this team. They believe and find joy in it, not perfect joy. There were some grumpy attitudes about the bad calls that cost them runs and outs they needed. They felt disappointed to come so close and not win, but they came farther than any other team have. If you have ever seen a group of boys win a baseball game, you have seen joy. It is pure and whole. Nothing else in the world can matter to a 12-year-old boy that wins a baseball game. You don't believe me you can ask Chaucer about the time his team won the farm tournament in 2019 and he will give you every detail possible that joy is only built built though because they have faced the losses because they have toiled against boys that are a literal foot taller and stronger that's because we are that's what we are doing each day in whatever our work is we are fit fighting against the taller stronger teams and sometimes we get a win. And the victory is sweet and the pure joy because we know the taste of sorrow. I am not an optimist. I am fine with, and I am fine with not being one. I'm not the type of person that believes every defeat leads to a victory. Some days I am knocked down and I stay down. I wallow and I long for the abyss of nothing matters. I also 100% fully believe that the next day could be better. I believe that God offers me sweet and complete joyful victories that are mine. My victories don't look like your victories, and yours don't look like mine. If you could list out your joys and your toils, what would your list look like? Maybe you won your baseball game. Maybe you didn't yell at your kids when it was bedtime, and they decided to argue over who was allowed to use the bathroom. Maybe you didn't yell at... Or, sorry, Or possibly you remembered to pray every day for someone. Or you served your boss and worked well. Possibly you went to school and were kind to someone who needed it. Big or small, we toil each day. And big or small, we are offered joy each day. It is hard to hold on to small joys when the toils feel so hard. The next part of the verse is that we should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all our toil. I think it is because while we we will never have all the answers to anything we will always be offered grace, love, and joy and toils. And all our work moments are going to pop up and be pure joy. We don't always know what those moments are before we live them. Until we live through them and are standing years away from those moments and see the sweetness in them, watch any video of your kids as toddlers and you instantly forget what it was like to raise toddlers and only remember the good times and smile and laugh and cry because of the sweetness of the memory when my family talks about our family trips to disneyland we laugh about driving through a blizzard in shasta tessa crying for a solid hour because the fruit snacks were gone and losing chaucer on christmas day in a park with a literal million people in it all those hard pieces become family legend, and we retell them to each other other over our dinner table and smile. I realize not every hard part becomes traditional joy. I know in this room people have walked through real and true tragedies, things no person should have to walk through. So maybe you are asking yourself, am I really supposed to have joy in the darkest parts? And I would say, yes, not easily. I don't offer flippant joy and I never could. But scripture says that this gift is from God, and God only offers good gifts. He is simply not capable of bad or evil gifts. It is usually the people I have encountered that had suffered the most that understood joy in the biggest and most real way. We are approaching Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, where God's son suffered. He suffered first so he could enter our suffering and turn it to joy. That he that his healing self could take our scars and make them our greatest strengths. All the weapons I have against evil have come from the biggest sufferings. The places I toil and work the hardest are the places I see the biggest joys flow from. I don't know, I don't know that I could ever say that I am glad to have suffered or that you all have suffered, but I can say without hesitation, I am thankful that God loves you enough to show up in the midst of every good or bad there could be, waiting to offer his hands filled with grace, love, and joy. I perceive that whatever God does endure forever, nothing can be added, nor anything can be taken away. God has done it so that his people before him, people fear before him. It is because of these words we can take the good and the bad and find joy. Whatever God does endures forever. Can you imagine that if everything we did endured forever, even in my best moments, should not be remembered for all time? We are people that are best at best remembered for four to five generations before we become a name on a family tree. It could either be crushing to realize this because we spend a lot of time trying to do the right thing and make the right choices to eventually be forgotten, or it could be encouraging to know that no one will be able to track all the mistakes and wrong turns we have made. To me it is both there is a very human side of my heart that longs for the notoriety and glory of being the example that others should follow and point to all my gold stars of life achievements and be so pleased to be related to me there's also a very human part of my heart that is glad that at some point no one will be able to list all my failures or lackings or ever say don't be like her eventually we all We all become family legends and are just those memories from trips and life stages long past. The eternal part of my heart where God lives, knows and accepts that all I do with these earthly years are kept by him. All I created for him is his. Every word I've ever written, I've written into my soul and onto his hands that hold me. He reminds me that he will be remembered for all time. I will fade to dust someday. Actually, I want to be fed to a shark and not buried, and Angie knows what to do, but metaphorical dust is what we will say. And all I, became, and all I become becomes part of someone else's memories. Just as those that came before me are just names on, the, on a list, what, do, what I don't know, though, are what those people did to prepare the way for me. I could have had ancestors that fell to their knees and cried out in prayers for my soul. I have fallen to my knees and prayed for generations I will never know. I don't have to know, though, because God heard those prayers. He endures forever, so the hearts he saved before mine and after are what last. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. As rough as growing up was for me in all the pain and sadness, no one was going to snatch me away from God. Because before I knew it, I belonged to him, and I was his, and what his endures forever. It says, God has done it so that people fear before him. In this whole section of scripture, what has rung true to me about God is that like a parent with a heart that loves their children, God loves us. So perhaps the fear here is what you can imagine it looks like when a parent sees their kid in danger or being hurt. No one wants to be the person on the other side of the parent's anger. God as being a perfect father has built an entire universe to protect what is his and made it clear that if you mess with that, you will deal with him. Also, like a good parent, he will let us struggle and suffer to learn and grow, but it doesn't mean he leaves us there alone or isn't watching and ready for us. We can take all the toiling and find the joy because he is the comfort we seek. We can fail and succeed at creating because he has already created everything we need. We can step up to bat and face the pitcher that is a foot taller than us and swing because whether we hit the ball or the ball hits us, he is waiting to accept and guide us through the next at bat. We can pray, fight, and sacrifice for future generations of our family because knowing they won't know us and we won't know them we we know god will know them the author ends the section with that which is already has been and that which is to be has already has been and god seeks what has been driven away in each of the commentaries i opened and read about this verse they all said the same thing pretty much nothing the best two that I could find were maybe it refers to a popular saying we no longer know or people seeking in vain while God does not. Mostly, though, they said that no one knows why it says this, that it implies a lot about God pursuing and that we could never really understand what God's perp- pursues or why the why of him pursuing things. They are probably right. I don't know what this means. And that's OK. I don't need to know exactly what it means. At first glance, it feels weird that this section ends like this, but then I thought about Ecclesiastes as a whole, and, as, and it, it really fits. Into this weird, nothing really matters, but everything matters place, we circle in this book. The hope that exists on these pages is beyond us, and yet always within reach. Really, there isn't a better book for me, because like this book, I'm two opposite sides of one existing thing. It is, chaot- it is as chaotic as it is peaceful, which honestly is what it feels like to me that Scott will be on sabbatical and we will be running the ship. Scott asked me last summer what book I thought we should go with, and I said Ecclesiastes, partially because I like that it's weird. And perhaps in the spirit of everything I just spoke in this sermon, God's all-knowing knew that it would fit in the places we are all at. That it would fit the chaos of Scott not being here and the peace that the Holy Spirit doesn't leave because Scott did. The humor of this last piece of Ecclesiastes preached on before Easter isn't a piece that can be tied up, but leaves the question of what's next. I don't know what is next. I know I will humbly and desperately seek prayers as I step into a role of more preaching, a role I never thought I would have. I know each one of us has, been, has the same Holy Spirit as any pastor. As I try to create what God calls me to create, I'll be pushed beyond and I, whatever, what I, every thought I could do. So I don't know what this last line means, and I don't know what comes next, but God does. He seeks what has been driven away. He is eternal, he is beyond our toil, and even beyond our earthly joy. He offers us gifts, and is our best gift.